This is Weekend Magazine, a news and public affairs feature presented by 96.3 News Radio KKOB. I'm John Summers with an invitation to stay tuned as we focus on topics of interest that may impact your life. We start off the show with a subject which touches every resident of the Duke City, and that's the loss of loved ones passing before us. Each day there are families who lose a father, mother, husband, wife, or child, and that family may not be able to afford care for that ailing individual. There's a need for a special facility in Albuquerque. Thankfully, the Presbyterian Healthcare Foundation is focusing on fulfilling that need with its annual Daffodil Days fundraiser. The money gathered this year will go toward the construction of the Robert Wertheim Hospice House, expected to open in March of 2022. I met with two persons heavily involved with this effort, and I'll allow them to introduce themselves. I'm Julie Bowditch. I'm a member of the Presbyterian Healthcare Foundation Board and co-chair of Daffodil Days, and I have been co-chair for quite a few years. My name is Doyle Boykin, and I'm the Vice President of Operations for the Presbyterian Hospice, Home Care, and Palliative Care Program, which stretches across New Mexico. Let's start with the background information, first of all. This is our 38th annual Daffodil Days. This year, thanks to COVID, we're kind of uh, making some changes. Last year, we had to cancel the event right before we shut down completely. So this year, we're prepared where everything will be COVID safe. And we're going to be very careful from the prepping of the flowers on to contactless delivery. You can either pick up your flowers or we will deliver them. So just kind of a rethinking of the event. We've shortened it a little bit. We'll be selling and delivering flowers on March 18, which is a Thursday, and March 19, a Friday, only from eight Presbyterian locations. We're not doing our pop-up shops this year because of the logistics. We've also updated our website, and it's, it's pretty exciting. You can do all kinds of things on it, which I can talk about later on. And we're raising money for the operations of the Robert Wertheim Hospice House, which we hope to have open for business in the year 2022. You've been selling flowers by mail order or by online orders already, right? Yes, for 38 years. And this year, our website is live. I actually did something new on it, which was to send an e-daffodil and card to someone special. To recognize them, you can make a donation and send that. And that goes out right away. That doesn't hold till the event. So that's new and exciting. This is the only way you have of raising the funds for this particular project through selling daffodils. Yes, through this event. And Mm -hmm. of course, you can always donate to the hospice house through the year, um, like you can donate to any of our other projects at at the foundation. But this is specific to the hospice house, yes. Okay. Daffodil Days is very important to Presbyterian. We've been doing this for 38 years and the money typically goes to support our hospice program and the various initiatives that we do around hospice care across New Mexico. This year and most likely going forward, Daffodil Days funds will be used for the construction and then operation of the hospice house. And the hospice house is a new initiative for us at Presbyterian and we think one of the only buildings or institutions like it in the state of New Mexico. The hospice house will be a 10-bed facility in the Northeast Heights of Albuquerque, built to look more like a residential uh, location, 
than a clinic, um, both inside and out. And the purposes of the hospice house is to care for individuals during the very last part of their life, be it the last few weeks or the last few months of their life. Specifically for people that can't go home or don't have a home or don't have the resources at home to care for them. And so they will be able to um, live the last part of their life in a home where their families can come and visit and where we will offer as much or as little care for them as they need. This is going to be funded for the most part. Our operations will be funded by donations from the community and uh, supported also by Presbyterian. All right. Now, why the hospice house? Surely there are other facilities available. The thing about a hospice house that's different than a clinical or medical facility, certainly people are admitted to the hospital when they are acutely ill. And sometimes hospice patients are admitted to the hospital. The preference for most people during their last days is to be in their homes, surrounded by their family, their pets, their familiar things, sounds and smells. But sometimes that's not possible for them. They may have an elderly spouse who can't care for them. Their family may not live in New Mexico. They may not be sick enough to warrant a hospital admission. Uh, there's very specific requirements that require a hospital admission, but they, they need more care than they can receive at home. Now, an option would be to go to a, a nursing home, um, but oftentimes the cost of a nursing home is not with what the family is able to provide. And so this will be a, a lower cost alternative, or in some cases, a no cost alternative for individuals to receive care like they would receive in their home. How is this paid for? as far as the patient's cost or if there are costs? Well, we haven't fully established what the room and board cost would be yet. We are going to be asking for some reimbursement and some individuals and families will be able to, to make that, some will not be able to. And so we're still early on in deciding what that room and board fee will, will be at this time. But we do know that um, in some circumstances, individuals will not be able to pay and those, thus the need for the foundation and the foundation support, and the community support to pick up the tab for these individuals. Is this covered by Medicare or medical insurance? My answer to that is yes and no. So to receive hospice care is indeed covered by Medicare. So that is an outpatient service provided in an individual's home. That pays for your medications, that pays for a physician and a nurse and therapist, social worker, chaplains to come into your home to design a plan of care and to work with your family to provide that plan of care. It is not 24-7 care. There's not a nurse or an aide in your home throughout the day delivering the care. The expectation of Medicare and a hospice program is that that care is delivered by the family. So in this circumstance, that is paid for by Medicare. But room and board at a facility like this is not covered by Medicare. And so that becomes the obligation of the family or the patient or community donors. What brought about this idea of having a hospice? The hospice house has been a dream of the hospice caregivers. As long as I've been involved, and I've been involved almost 30 years, and then all of a sudden, we got traction. Presbyterian has offered hospice services for many decades, close to 40 years, and most of the care that we deliver is in individuals' homes. We do have a dedicated hospital unit for the very sickest of these patients. And we've operated that for several decades as well. But we've never had a hospice house. It's that in-between place. It has been the dream of uh, many administrators and physicians and nursing leaders for a long time that we open a program like this. But 
um, as Julie said, um, funding and, and pulling together uh, the donors needed to build a home is, is pretty significant. And so with uh, inspiring leaders like Julie and, and the Wertheims, we were able to come together and finally build a program uh, that is going to be a beautiful facility inside and outside and allow us to deliver the care that these people deserve. All right, if we may, let's speak to the Wertheims. Very, very special family, New Mexico family. I'm going to tear up. <laughs> I also chaired the um, campaign to raise the over $3 million for the hospice house. Robert Wertheim, a longtime banker, rancher, wonderful, wonderful person. He was on the board, the big board at Presbyterian, the governing board, for years and years and years. So in his, his heart and his passion, we're very involved with Presbyterian. He has since passed, and they had hospice. So his wife, uh, Liz, wanted to do this in his honor. And I can't think of a, a more special person to step to the plate to do this. It's perfect. It's a perfect marriage. So the family is completely behind this, obviously. Totally. And Bob was well-loved in the community. It is a fitting tribute to him. Down to the brass tacks. What do we have now as far as funding, and what do we hope to have by the end of this promotion? We make very good money selling daffodils, and a big part of this program is our wonderful sponsors and our sponsorship money. The Garcia Automotive Group is again our presenting sponsor. They also gave us a warehouse because we have to prep all these flowers. There's a lot of work that goes into it before someone comes to get their wonderful bouquet or arrangement. Hopefully, we'll have another almost couple hundred thousand dollars more to add to this ongoing endeavor. And we're hoping for groundbreaking shortly and going forward and getting this house open in the year 2022. You've just heard Julie Bowditch and Doyle Boykin with the Presbyterian Healthcare Foundation discussing the annual fundraiser known as Daffodil Days to raise money for construction of the Robert Wertheim Hospice House here in Albuquerque. We'll continue during the next few weeks spotlighting this ongoing effort. You can head to our website, newsradiokkob.com, for complete information. Thanks so much for tuning in to Weekend Magazine. I'm News Radio KKOB's John Summers. Let's turn our attention now, as the Weekend Magazine rolls on, to a recent interview. KKOB's T.J. Trout had New Mexico's Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales on his afternoon program discussing the pandemic and its impact on hospitals, schools, and practically every other aspect of our daily lives. So how are the hospitalization, how are the beds doing? That's something that, that I know we've talked about uh, many times because I look at that as an indicator of what we're able to do when we talk about opening up, getting our kids in school, doing other type of, of activities that would cause the numbers to rise. Um, we were going to see what was happening in other states where there was going to be long lines, not able to treat patients not only for COVID but other uh, issues that they were dealing with health-wise. We're glad to see these numbers are, are dropping, but we still have to realize that we're still putting a strain on our healthcare workers, and it's important that we continue to do our part to keep these numbers as low as possible. Are you guys still looking to recruit more healthcare workers into the state? Is that an active thing you guys are doing? Absolutely. When you look and see the toll that's taken, the burnout that's uh, gone in um, for our healthcare workers, um, the more that we can have, the better. We need to ensure that we're keeping them rested, that we're keeping them safe, and more manpower is absolutely more critical to ensure that we can have a healthy 
New Mexico. Uh, the state has put up the COVID-19 vaccine dashboard, and I see you have all the numbers there. Um, it, we'll, we'll explain what we'll explain what's up there for people. Yeah, and I'm glad I, that we have this dashboard available because we get many questions, many uh, concerns of how the vaccine rollout is going in the state of New Mexico. And, and the reality of it is New Mexico is doing a much better job than most other states in this whole country of getting the vaccines out, getting them in people's arms. And so I sent that for you to have on your website and have it as an easy link so people can, can go on there of getting these vaccines in and getting them administered into into New Mexicans' arms. If you'll look at the CDC has the dashboard as well, theirs is a little bit different because they don't necessarily um, tally it by dose that, how many um, that we've received, but how right. many that they've distributed. And meaning that we haven't gotten all the vaccines that they've distributed. Right. Okay. Are we still receiving regular shipments of vaccine into the state? Or has there been or has there been an interruption in the delivery of the vaccine? We're still very reliant on the manufacturers and how they can get those out and how quickly that Pfizer and Moderna can get these out. Because that means that the more vaccines we get out, our systems seem to be working, the more we're able to get those distributed and administered. The amount of vaccines that are available, recognizing that we need to have those 75 and above, the most vulnerable, get those vaccines and have those ready available to administer. Rule now is, Howie, that uh, college athletes are able to practice here but not play here. And that's a huge step in, in the right direction. You know, I, I want to thank the meetings that I had with, uh, with Eddie Nunez, uh, Coach uh, Gonzalez, um, to really find ways that we can have uh, changes to the COVID safe practices. And Stephanie Rodriguez from our Department of Higher Ed, as well as um, those involved in the governor's office, really came together to make this a reality. So yeah, so it's great to have our student athletes come back, practice in the state. We're not at the point where we can have competition, but that uh, just step forward has really been a sigh of relief for colleges all across the state. And I'm hoping that we can have that momentum carry over for youth sports, for high school sports, so that we have safety, responsible return to play, uh, while at the same time is, is making sure that we're resuming activity as best we can in the state. I mean, you have any idea when, when you, what the state thinks they will allow competition here in the state? Looking at the number of the vaccines and seeing the, the amount that the percentages that have been out there, that's just a, a positive sign that we're moving in the direction. Our numbers going down on daily case counts. Um, of course, what we want to do is make sure we can have classroom instruction take place. Um, once that go-ahead goes forward, then we're able to resume and talk about not only practices, but having that activity of competition. I, I think that we're all wanting to, and I'm glad that the governor's office has been so committed to work to make this happen. Man, I want to get to the legislative session. I just got another email in about education. Uh, goes, my kids go to Albuquerque Academy. Since the academy is considered a business, their capacity is limited to 25%, but public schools are allowed 50%. Why can't the governor make a temporary decision to allow private schools to open at 50? Yeah, I think that's going to be part of the discussion as we, we move forward. And um, early on, I know that there was the, the business side that was taken, the business model that would allow for entry into the schools. I do think that's going to start opening up, not only for the private schools, but also for public schools so that we can move from the setting of, of remote learning to the option of hybrid learning for, uh, as we have now, elementary, but also moving into our middle school and our high schools. 
which include our charters and our private schools. Okay. All right. One more. One more email. How can you assure the the, the public that they will have access to the legislative session when it's pretty much closed down because of COVID and security? That's been a challenge, and I, I know that uh, my, my response is to, um, as much as possible, log on, and I know it's tough because it's through webcast, but also have a relationship with your local legislators, and hopefully they're accessible. I know me personally, I put out that um, I'm going to have virtual office hours and to contact my office because I want to hear from the public. I know that people... And the other executive offices are doing the same. State Auditor, Brian Cologne, um, Maggie Tillis Oliver, we're all trying to do what we can from the executive side to be connected with people across the state. And I'm assuming that's going to be the case with legislators. It's tough. It's something we have never experienced before. But absolutely, the public needs to be involved in this process. There's emails sent. Forward them on to me. Um, I'd love to be able to connect because if they've taken the time to ask the question through email, um, I want to make sure and have a response for them as well. Thanks a lot, Howie. Really appreciate you being here. Uh, that's Lieutenant Governor Harry Morales. That was a recent discussion, edited for the sake of generality, with KKOB afternoon talk show host T.J. Trout chatting with New Mexico Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales about the COVID-19 atmosphere. Up next, from the Rio Grande Foundation's Tipping Point Public Affairs feature, a look into the 2021 New Mexico legislative activity with a person who knows very well what he's in for during the next few weeks as a member of that body. I'm Paul Guessing, president of the Rio Grande Foundation, New Mexico's free market think tank. You can find out more about the foundation at riograndefoundation.org. I'm very pleased to be joined this week by Representative Greg Nybert. Welcome to Tipping Point, New Mexico, Greg. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure being with you this day. Yeah, now uh, first, uh, let's talk a little bit about yourself. You are a Republican from the Roswell area. And uh, what uh, what number of terms have you been in? Is this your second go-round in the Roundhouse? This will be my third term. I uh, was first elected in uh, 2016, so I entered office uh, in January of 2017, and so this will be my, my third uh, full term that I've served in the New Mexico House of Representatives. Um, I, I served District 59, which is basically Western Chavez County and most of Lincoln County, except for the Rio Dosa, Rio Dosa Downs area. And it uh, gets all the, all the rural parts of uh, Lincoln County and then uh, basically everything west of Main Street in Roswell, uh, except for the historic district. Got it. And you uh, are an attorney by, by training, right? Yes, I'm an oil and gas lawyer. I've uh, been practicing oil and gas law since uh, 1983. So I've been been around the block a few times and been on the oil and gas roller coaster more times than I would like to admit. I do want to talk to you a little bit about you know, some of the issues that you'll be discussing and whether you really think we can have a full uh, session like uh, an in-person session would be. But uh, I know that one of your top legislative priorities, and quite frankly, ours as well at the Rio Grande Foundation, is doing something to rein in the governor's nearly unlimited powers under the emergency acts that uh, we've we've seen in place 
since March, really about 11th, that's when things got kicked off in terms of the COVID-19 situation. I know you've got uh, bipartisan support, at least some support for uh, doing that, partially because, well, the legislature should have a seat at the table, I think, and, you know, not just as a conservative uh, free market guy, but in general, from a governance perspective, uh, it's hard to justify putting one person in charge of virtually all areas of government and expanding government power for 10 months, 12 months, uh, a year or more, uh, you know, where we are right now. So uh, tell us about those efforts to try to address some of the governor's unlimited powers. Well, it's been real interesting. Uh, As you know, Paul, I introduced House Bill 10 in the June special session and then House Bill 2 in the November, December uh, special session, uh, which, which essentially made the statement that the governor had to bring the legislative branch into uh, into the mix when dealing with these protracted emergencies. And, and to date, the legislative branch has been completely ignored. Um, in fact, the judicial branch has had more interaction with this issue than, than the legislative branch. So the voices of the people from all corners of the state have not been heard. The only voices that have been heard are the governor and her uh, close circle of of, uh, uh, her cabinet. And while she does represent all of New Mexico, she's not on the ground in the various communities around the state, listening to the concerns that that people have in in the four corners of the state. Uh, and, and so I've felt all along that not only does the legislature need to have a seat at the table with respect to public policy in connection with these extended emergencies, but that in actuality, we have a constitutional duty to the people to be at that table and to craft and to appropriate funds from the treasury to deal with the protracted emergency, and that has not occurred. So my, my, the bills I introduced in the special session, of course, went nowhere. Uh, they went to rules committee where they sat, never uh, received uh, uh, a hearing, never saw the light of day. So after the June session, uh, Representative Eli uh, came to me and said, that's a, issue that is worthy of consideration and that it needs to be taken up and that he would work with me before the 60-day session in uh, in 2021 if uh, both he and I were were re-elected. We were re-elected after the election in November. He made good on his promise and so since uh, since November, we have been uh, working on trying to craft a bill that would meet my concerns and still uh, hopefully cut muster with the majority party. And, uh, you know, I've received some criticism that, uh, that, you know, people want this and this and this in the bill and, 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 
you know, they want to make it where uh, basically the, the legislative branch uh, would then take over the operations of orders. And, and frankly, that's not going to happen. Uh, the, you know, having to work with uh, a member of the majority party means that uh, they've got the votes and I don't. So I, I don't come to the table with a great bargaining position other than what I think is a very compelling reason. And that is a balance of powers issue and a constitutional role that only the legislature has and, and that we are dropping the ball. We're not fulfilling our constitutional obligation to the citizens of New Mexico if we allow the governor to do everything. We have a role to play. So, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's what I can bring to the table, but in crafting the really, uh, you know, what is going to cut muster and get a majority. And frankly, Paul, it's going to have to be not just a majority, but it's going to have to be a super majority because in essence, we will be taking back some of the power that the executive has, has come to. Uh, I think she, she likes having that, all that power. And we're going to be taking some of that power back from her. She's likely to veto any legislation regarding this issue. So the way I've approached it is we not only need a majority, we need a supermajority that can withstand any gubernatorial veto of this legislation. So I, I can tell you that within 15 minutes of, of our discussion here, I've uh, exchanged some, some emails and, and tweaked some language in it. Uh, and we are, getting ready to send it to uh, legislative council service for a second draft of, of the bill. And, and essentially it gives the governor, it still acknowledges that the governor has uh, the, the, the true role to play in dealing with emergencies. It's the executive department that has to uh, deal with the emergencies. Legislative branch is not designed to deal with the day-to-day -day operations of government. We set public policy. We do not do the day-to-day -day operations. So it acknowledges the governor's role. Uh, secondly, it gives uh, the governor's office uh, uh, quite a bit of time. Uh, and, and people may be upset, but uh, uh, it looks like uh, uh, 90 days is, is the time period that we're coming up with for the governor to uh, have an order in place. If the governor desires to extend an order beyond 90 days, then she must call the uh, legislative branch into special session, where upon the voices from the four corners of the state become advised of the nature of the emergency, gets get to uh, uh, weigh in on the public policy aspects of the emergency, get to appropriate the funds for dealing with the emergency and uh, can restrict, modify, otherwise uh, uh, deal with the emergency. So that's 
kind of the triggering event would be if the governor desires to extend an emergency as she has done every month for 10 months now, if she desires to extend it beyond uh, 90 days, then, then it will require the legislature to specifically to be called into special session to deal with the uh, uh, emergency. And uh, there's, there's two things that uh, uh, we are maybe moving forward on. Of course, not, nothing's set in stone right now. We're still negotiating, but uh, it, it looks like uh, we may have a bill and we may have a proposed constitutional amendment for the people of New Mexico to weigh in on this because some of the aspects of it cannot be done without a constitutional amendment. And it also means that the governor does not have a, an ability to veto a measure that is put on the ballot for vote by the people. So even if she vetoes and we can't override the veto on the bill, we have a backup for a constitutional amendment for the people to vote on. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time here today, Representative Greg Nybert from Roswell. And uh, we'll be seeing you virtually, I suppose, during the 2021 legislative session. And uh, best of luck and let us know how we can help with the bill on restricting the governor's unlimited powers uh, under the emergency laws of the state. And with that informative interaction, we want to thank the Rio Grande Foundation for their resources. Their website is riograndefoundation.org. You've just heard Weekend Magazine, a news and public affairs feature presented by 96.3 News Radio KKOB. I'm John Summers, inviting you to join us again next weekend as we highlight topics that may affect your life.